0: all know that calculating a tax provision is a challenging process. It requires accuracy. It must be done quickly and sometimes on a tight deadline. It must offer insight into a corporation's financial past and predict its future. But perhaps the biggest challenge is the necessity for tax professionals calculating this provision to straddle two sets of rules, accounting rules and tax rules. How does that complicate things? On today's episode, we talk to provision expert Howard Telson about the central reason why the tax provision calculation is so complex, and that's because of the major differences between accounting rules and tax law. Howard, welcome back to The Fiona Show. Tax provision, you have years of experience with the income tax provision. What makes this area of tax so interesting, yet so different from the other areas of tax?
1: Thanks, Matt. It's great to be back. I think the point you made with regard to, you know, accounting versus tax law is really the most interesting part. You know, a provision at its core is really the intersection of where accounting and tax rules collide. And that's a lot of what we'll be talking about today. But when we think about a provision, the way the tax calculations are basically done is your starting point is accounting data. And then you look at the accounting data, you analyze the rules, you understand the rules, and then you try to make adjustments to the tax rules. So in order to be an effective tax professional who works on tax provisions, you really need to understand both sets of rules, accounting and tax rules. And tax provisions, as opposed to tax returns, have this additional element in them as well. And that you're not just doing kind of calculations and coming up with numbers based on the tax rules. You also then need to take your results and put them into a financial statement, which is all based around accounting standards. So it's really where these accounting standards and tax rules collide and in a much bigger way than just kind of analyzing the data and going from accounting income to tax income. You're also taking that output of the tax provision and then actually putting it into a financial statement, which is based around accounting rules as well. So it's this kind of back and forth between straddling this line between accounting and tax and tax and accounting. And that's kind of what I find the most interesting.
0: Before we dive too far into today's topic, in that case, let's take a look at the big picture for everyone who hasn't yet heard the Fiona show tax provision episode one, which I highly recommend because it's a wonderful introduction to the subject. Howard, can you tell us what the income tax provision is and why it's so important for companies?
1: Basically, a tax provision is a calculation of the collective impact of income tax on a company's financial statements. So what exactly does that mean? So income tax shows up in a few areas on a company's financial statements. And when we're talking about financial statements in the US, that's a Form 10-K on an annual basis and a Form 10-Q on a quarterly basis. And foreign countries have similar requirements or financial statements. So where does income tax show up on a financial statement? The first place, which is kind of the most obvious, is income tax expense. And that's on a company's income statement. So an income statement, as we talked a little bit about in the last episode, is a collection of revenue and expenses and ultimately you get to a net income, which is basically how profitable was a company during the year. If it's positive, the company was profitable. If it's negative, the company wasn't profitable. And obviously you want that metric to be as high as possible. So one item that directly impacts that metric is tax. So a tax provision, the higher it is, the lower your earnings will be and the lower it is, the higher your earnings will be. So there's this kind of inverse relationship between tax and your income. So that's one place it shows up. Another place it shows up is on the balance sheet. As we mentioned last time, a balance sheet is basically a schedule that shows your assets, your liabilities, and your shareholders' equity. And the reason why it's called a balance sheet is because your assets need to equal your shareholders' equity and your liabilities. So the income tax provision sprouts up on the balance sheet in a couple different places. The most obvious is something called an income tax payable or receivable. And this is basically telling users of a financial statement if a company is over or underpaid from an income tax perspective. They'll calculate the provision that goes on the income statement and that says how much tax expense they have for the year. And then they're gonna look at how much tax they paid in in estimated tax payments or overpayments from a previous period. And they're gonna kinda compare those two things and say, okay, did I pay in too much or did I pay in too little? If I paid in too much, I'm actually in a receivable position and I should be due a refund from the government. If I paid it too little, I'm in a payable position, and I owe money to the government in the future. That's one area of the balance sheet. And another area, which is a little bit trickier, is called deferred tax asset or liability. And this is kind of one of the key topics around tax versus accounting rules, but essentially a deferred tax asset or liability is tracking the future tax benefit or expense that corresponds with a difference between an accounting and tax rule. We'll see how the accounting and tax rules differ in this episode, but certain differences will lead to these deferred tax assets and liabilities. And then the last place that kind of sprouts up in the financial statements is something called an effective tax rate. So this is in your footnotes, to the financial statements, which is basically just more supplementary detail. You get to something called this effective tax rate, which really shows how efficient a company's tax operation is. So the lower the effective tax rate, generally the better. It shows that generally you're paying less tax expense, compared to your accounting income. And usually what companies do is they compare this measure to their peers. So they'll look at you know competitors and other members of their peer group and see how they're doing up against them. And then they'll compare it to themselves. So they'll say, my effective tax rate was X this quarter or this year. What was it last year, last quarter? You know, Did it go up? Did it go down? And why did it do that? Those are kind of the main things that come out of a tax provision. And we'll be talking more about intricacies of accounting versus tax state, which is really the core of how you do these calculations.
0: So we know calculating the income tax provision requires two sets of laws, accounting and tax. What are exactly the differences between the two?
1: When we think about a provision, you have to get to your tax numbers. And the question is, how do you do that? How do you get to your tax numbers? The way you do it for corporations is you start with your accounting data so you start with your accounting income and all your accounting data and then you look at that you analyze it you understand what's in it and then you make adjustments from there to get to your taxable income and your tax data so the accounting data is the key starting point and then you're using that data and trying to analyze it and see okay from a tax perspective what is this item of income? What is this item of expense? How do we treat it? And then you adjust from there to get to your tax figures. We need to kind of bridge the gap between both of these rules and understand how both of these sets of rules work. Just focusing on the U.S. for now and international rules are very similar. But in the U.S. the accounting standard is called GAP, Generally Accepted Accounting Principles. And the tax standard is based around the internal revenue code, right? So The the rules promulgated by Congress and enforced by the IRS, that's kind of the tax standard, which individuals are very familiar with on their own. The accounting standards are, are quite different. So what are the main differences really? Accounting rules are something based on an accrual based principle, which means that expenses or revenue are recorded to the income statement when they're incurred. Okay, so let me just give a very basic example of how this works. So let's say we're a calendar year company and we get to the end of the year, we get to 1231. And the company decides basically it had a good year and it wants to pay its employees bonuses. So at the end of the calendar year at 1231, it's making an announcement that it's going to pay all of its employees a certain amount of bonus. But it's not going to pay that bonus out until after its year end. So until after 1231. The company has to issue financial statements as of 1231. So the question is, what does it do? does it record that expense at 1231 or does it wait to record the expense until it pays the cash out, you know, maybe two weeks after 1231 in the next year. And the answer is they record the expense, you know, right in that calendar year because that's the year it relates to. So that's what accrual really relates to. They incurred that expense because they announced that they're giving the bonuses and they don't need to pay them out under accounting rules under GAAP. They just need to basically incur it, and then they record the expense. So what about tax? Tax rules are a bit different. They're generally what's called cash-based. So that would mean that expenses are deducted when cash is spent, and revenue is recorded when cash is collected. So this is probably more obvious, a little bit more straightforward, but just to give kind of that same example, so let's just say that same company had that bonus at 1231 that it announces, But it doesn't pay it out until the next year until let's just say january 15th the next year it may not be able to deduct that amount the tax rules though have a multitude of exceptions where they actually may be able to deduct the amount but the general rule is that under a cash basis method you wouldn't be able to deduct the amount so then you would need to find an exception in order to actually make that deduction for tax and that's kind of the heart of the differences And when we think about, you know, why are these differences the way they are? We should think about the incentives, right? So what do the tax authorities want to do, right? They want to speed up income and they want to slow down expenses, right? Because that just means more tax revenue for the government. But what do the accounting authorities want to do? They want to slow down income and speed up expenses because that means more conservative income in financial statements. So on financial statements, people want to juice up earnings, basically, because, you know, everyone wants higher earnings, increases your stock price and all that. But on a tax return, everyone wants to slow down income and increase expenses and drive down that tax liability. So these kind of misaligned incentives is where it becomes pretty interesting between accounting
0: and tax. Right. So the tax rules are a little bit more like a balancing a checkbook, whereas the accounting rules are a little bit more for the Mm -hmm. investors for putting on your best face, in essence. So just a little synopsis there. So we have everybody on the same page. You have to get your tax numbers for corporations starting with the accounting data. You make adjustments to get your tax data looking at each item of income and expense to bridge the gap between tax and accounting rules there is first the gap g a a p generally accepted accounting principles and then the internal revenue code accounting rules are based on accrual we just had that example of the company that doled out the bonus before the year end by accounting rules you would count that in the year prior and by tax rules, if the money left the account on January 15th under tax rules, you might not be able to deduct that amount from the previous year or at least the year from which you took an accounting rules, because that's when you told everybody you were doling out the bonus. It's also worth noting that tax rules are generally cash based calling for expenses to be deducted when cash is spent and revenue to be included as income when cash is collected. There's also the difference between incentives. Tax authorities want to speed up income and slow down expenses, as you were just saying, and accountants want to speed up expenses and slow down income. Now, how a corporation treats a certain expenditure or income using accounting rules may be different than the IRC tax rules. Can you give us an example of that?
1: There's a bunch of examples we could kind of talk about, and I'll I'll start with one real life example. And then for the second example, I'll give one that that's very common, but doesn't necessarily have real facts attached to it. So the first example is there's basically certain expenses for accounting purposes that aren't deductible for tax purposes ever. Right? So, and and this could be for a variety of reasons and many of the reasons are policy driven. So when Congress is writing the tax rules, it's kind of deciding, okay, there's certain things that we want to incentivize and there's certain things that we want to disincentivize. That's kind of the driving force for a lot of the rules. And one example of this is, you know, if you remember about 10 years ago, BP, you know, the oil company, had that large spill in the Gulf of Mexico that made national headlines. It caused a ton of damage. A lot of press was around it. But once the smoke cleared and they were kind of assessed from the government a penalty, so they were assessed a penalty for violating the Clear Water Act by the US government. So they had to pay a large penalty of over $5 billion, right? It's a huge amount. And for accounting purposes, this is an expense. So they incurred this amount, they paid it out in cash, and they incurred this expense for accounting purposes. Accounting purposes, as we discussed, want to slow down income and speed up expenses, and they wanna reflect the activity of a company in the most general sense. So it was an expense for accounting purposes. But for tax purposes, it was not deductible. It was a penalty, and for tax purposes, government penalties are generally not deductible, so it wasn't deductible for tax. This led to what's called an M1 adjustment of over $5 billion, and and we'll talk more about M1 adjustments in a bit. But let's just take a step back and think why this is. Why would the government want to not allow BP to have a tax deduction for this type of penalty? the government's really saying that they don't want to promote this type of behavior, right? So, so BP obviously screwed up in a major, major way and they violated this act and they shouldn't be rewarded from a tax perspective for violating this act. So they shouldn't receive a tax deduction. Therefore the way the rules work is they don't get a tax deduction. So there's no tax benefit for this kind of violation of this penalty. So that's one example. And that, you know, that's kind of a real life example and, and I'll give you one more that is extremely common among most companies. So in 2017, at the end of 2017, President Trump signed into law certain tax reform measures, right? So it made a lot of press a couple of years ago, and many companies are still kind of feeling the impact of of these tax reform measures, which are for the most part still in place. One of the measures was this provision which called for the full expensing of certain equipment purchases. So certain property, plant and equipment purchases could be fully expensed for tax purposes under this law. So 100% deduction when you purchase certain equipment. And this is very different for accounting purposes, which forces you to what's called depreciate or expense this equipment over a period of time, which is generally an asset's useful life. So accounting is really trying to mirror the true kind of expense incurred for this piece of equipment over time, over the asset's life. And it's trying to what's called match this expense with the amount of income that the asset is helping to generate over a period of time. But for tax, they're saying, you know you just get the the full expense all up front. Let's think for a second again about why this would be. So let's think about the policy from, from a tax perspective. So why would the government want to incentivize getting a full tax deduction all up front in year one of an asset purchase, as opposed to doing it like accounting where you do it over time and it matches up with an asset's useful life And it kind of matches the income that the asset generates, which seems to make a little bit more sense. So why would the taxing authorities want to do this? The reason is basically to incentivize companies to invest in infrastructure and capital investments in the U.S. The government was kind of thinking, how do we get companies to invest in the U.S. and build plants in the U.S. and invest in machinery and move some of their kind of manufacturing operations in the U.S. And they thought one way to do that Is to incentivize them from a tax perspective through this hundred percent depreciation or through this full expensing of equipment and property so that's kind of what happened and then when we think about the difference now between accounting and tax in tax you get this big expense in year one in accounting you're kind of trickling the expense through maybe five or ten years or more and it leads to this difference between accounting and tax over a large period of time
0: let's circle back to how tax accountants go about bridging the gap between these two nearly opposite sets of rules where do the tax pros begin
1: basically you know we talked a little bit before but you have to start at the accounting rules you have to understand the treatment what goes into them and then consider the tax rules you have the accounting rules you understand the treatment you have the tax rules you understand that treatment and once you have the two treatments kind of down pat then you look at the two you compare the two and then you have to adjust to get in between the two. And the way you adjust is through what's called an M1 adjustment or a book to tax adjustment. So, you know, it's kind of right in the name book as in accounting and then tax obviously is in tax. You're looking at the two sets of rules. You're looking at how they treat each item. Like, you know, we kind of just talked about in a couple examples and you're saying, how do I bridge the gap between these two things? And the methodology for bridging the gap is this thing called an M1 adjustment or a book to tax adjustment.
0: Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. Cross Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern-day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country-specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us transfer pricing university weekly classes are free so now you really have no reason to miss it sign up at xbs.ai slash tpu and howard you mentioned that there's a space between the two or that you can land on a place between the two i'm wondering what you mean by that because it can't be knowing your exact cash position or else that would just mean following the tax rules, but it's also not projections because then you would just follow the accounting rules. Okay, so
1: I think what will make this a little bit easier maybe is putting some numbers to to what we're talking about here, right? So let's think about the depreciation example again. So let's say that during the course of a year, a company purchases a million dollars of machinery for its factory. Okay, so for accounting, the accounting rules generally as i said allow you to depreciate over a useful life so let's just say for this example's sake that the useful life is 10 years for accounting purposes in year one we could depreciate out of the million dollars of equipment purchased we could depreciate one-tenth of it it's over a straight line basis so it's the same amount every year for 10 years so we could depreciate one-tenth of it or hundred thousand dollars so within our financial statements we'll have an expense for this piece of equipment in year one for accounting for $100,000. So that's accounting. Now let's think about tax. So for tax, as I mentioned, you could deduct 100% of this upfront on day one, the day you purchase the property. So what will happen for tax is you could deduct $1 million in the first year. And then in years two through 10, you don't get any deduction. So what will happen, is you will have a book to tax difference, right? Because for book, you have $100,000 of expense and for tax, you have a million dollars of expense. So that's a difference between the two. You have a book to tax difference of $900,000 in the first year. So what does this mean? When we think about the calculation of a provision, as we mentioned, you start at accounting income and work your way down to taxable income. That's really what a current provision is. And we'll talk a lot more about that. In future episodes but when we think about the current provision specifically you're starting at accounting income and then you're working your way down to taxable income so in your accounting income you're going to have this hundred thousand dollars of expense for book purposes but in your taxable income you're going to have a million dollars of expense related to this depreciation so how do we bridge the gap between those two we would have an m1 adjustment of nine hundred thousand dollars. To bring that income, that book income down to your tax income level. So to bridge that gap between the accounting or the book rules and the tax rules, we have this M1 adjustment. And that goes right into your current provision. And if we think about future years now, so that's year one. So what would happen next year is the question, because this year we have this kind of big benefit for tax purposes. We get the million dollars up front but for books or accounting, we only had a hundred thousand. So what happens next year in year two in year two next year for tax, we're done. We don't get any expense. We took it all up front in year one and we're done. We don't get any expense in year two through 10, but for accounting, we get that hundred thousand every year. So in year two, now we have a hundred thousand expense for accounting that we don't have for tax. So now when you're starting at your accounting income, you have that hundred thousand dollars of expense in there, And when you work your way down to that tax income, you're not gonna be able to have that $100,000 in there. So you have to reverse it out. And then the question is, once again, well, how do you reverse it out? And the answer is through an M1 adjustment. So in the first year, you had a favorable M1 adjustment that brought your taxable income down of $900,000. And in the second year, you have an unfavorable M1 adjustment of $100,000 that brings your taxable income up. This is kind of the push and pull between the tax and accounting rules. And by the way, that kind of difference that is reversing over time, you know, we started with this big benefit for tax and now every year we're kind of eating into it and having a little bit of an unfavorable adjustment each year. That's the impetus for the deferred tax assets and liabilities, which we'll talk about in much more detail in a later episode. And it's a bit confusing, but if we think about it in this year one, we had this difference between book and tax that went one way. That tax was more of a deduction than book. And then in year two, it went the other way. Book had more of an expense than tax. So it starts to reverse. And over time, it's going to keep reversing and keep reversing until at the end of 10 years, the reversal is completely done. Every year, accounting is getting this hundred thousand expense while tax has nothing for years two to years 10 until accounting ultimately gets to that million dollars of the equipment that it purchased. Until it ultimately expenses that million dollars. And then, if you look at the 10 years in comparison in total for both accounting and tax, they each got a million dollars of expense. So it was equal. And the process of kind of tracking that difference year over year and the cumulative amount of that difference amounts to what goes into your deferred tax asset and liability.
0: So, can you tell us what makes these laws challenging in terms of calculating your income tax provision now that we've kind of set the stage? with m1 adjustments
1: i think there's a couple things to kind of talk about here so so first of all you know i kind of gave a couple examples of m1 adjustments but there's basically two types of Mm. m1 adjustments and the treatment or the tracking of both types differs widely so the first type is what's called a temporary difference or a temporary m1 adjustment and this kind of relates back to my example of depreciation where you know we talked about how book and tax rules didn't mesh weren't the same in year one, but they also weren't the same in years two through 10. And over the course of time, they do become the same. Ultimately, in our example, we got that million dollars of expense for both book and tax, but every year for that 10 year period, it differed. So what does that mean? That means the difference was temporary in nature. In the first year, tax and accounting didn't sync up. It didn't sync up for years two through 10. When you look at the totality of that 10 years, it actually did sync up. You got the expense for both book and tax purposes. It's just the timing that differed. So that's what a a temporary difference is. And it's often called the timing difference because it's just based on the tax rules and the accounting rules differ, but they only differ in terms of timing of when you get a, a deduction or when you include a piece of income. So that's one group. The second group is what's called a permanent difference. So this is when you have a difference between the accounting and the tax law, but this difference never reverses. Okay, so you have an item of income or an item of expense for your accounting purposes, that's never included in income or never included as an expense for your tax purposes or vice versa, right? Where you have an item of income or expense for tax, that's never an item of income or expense for books. And a perfect example of this is the one we talked about before with BP. So, this was a penalty BP incurred that for accounting purposes, it had to take in its books right away, but for tax purposes, it never gets a deduction for it. So, it's very different than depreciation where, you know, when we talked about tax gets in year one and books gets in, you know, years one through 10, here, accounting gets in year one and tax never gets this. So, that's why it's permanent. It will never reverse. And we'll talk much more about permanent and temporary differences in future episodes, but that's kind of the key distinction in an M1 adjustment, is you need to group these two kind of differences and you need to understand what's a permanent adjustment and what's a temporary adjustment. So that's number one. And number two is just when we think about in general kind of the tax versus accounting rules, we talked about the general principles. So accounting being more accrual based. So you include expenses or revenue when it's incurred or earned over that time period while the tax rules are more cash-based and you deduct an expense when the cash is outlaid and you include income when cash is collected. However, what makes it really, really hard is that there's a slew of exceptions in the tax rules. So for many items, you actually follow the accounting approach. You follow the accrual accounting approach. That's kind of one basket. And then for some items, you do a hybrid approach where it's kind of falls somewhere in between the accrual principles and the cash principles. And a great example of that is the bonus expense that, that was mentioned before as well. So we talked about for accounting purposes, this bonus expense would be booked right away, even if you don't pay it in the year of the financial statement. But for tax, you may not be able to deduct it until the next year when it's paid. So this item, there is an exception in the tax rules that says, if you pay the expense out within two and a half months of your financial statements ending for a calendar year taxpayer, that would be by March 15th, you actually get to deduct the expense for tax purposes in the year before. So then your book accounting and your tax accounting would be the same. It would be equal. But in order to qualify for that, you also need to fulfill certain other qualifications as well. So it's not just as simple as did you pay or not, there's other rules like what was your bonus policy like and things like that. This kind of exceptional nature of this tax rules and the fact that, you know, there's the general rule, the general principle, and then the five exceptions that kind of go along with the general principle. This is what makes it so tough. You need to understand both sets of rules, but then you need to understand all the exceptions that go along with each set of rules. So even if you understand kind of the general principles, it's usually not enough. You need to go into the detail, and look at each specific item and see, you know, how is this specific item treated for tax? There's also certain exceptions for accounting as well, but the accounting principles generally hold true to that accrual principle a lot more than tax principles hold true to that cash principle. So the tax rules are ones that get a little wonkier and ones that, you know, kind of really need to be continuously tracked for each and every item.
0: I know you've used AI software to calculate the income tax provision. How has that helped you in terms of adjusting between accounting and tax rules?
1: When we think about this kind of process of, of starting with your accounting data and working your way down to your tax data, it is data intensive. And anything that's data intensive, you know, AI could, could really help with. And when you kind of receive all this accounting data, you need to sift through it and you need to see Okay, out of all this accounting data I received out of in my trial balance, right, which is just a listing of all the accounts for accounting purposes, which items in this trial balance are the same for book and tax and which items are different. And you could do that manually, right? You could kind of sift through every single line in the trial balance and kind of see what you think is, is equal for book and tax and what you think is different. And if it's different, you could flag it down and say, you know, I need to analyze this further and see if I need an M1 adjustment and see if I need to, you know, adjust it for, for book and tax purposes. So that's one way to do, and that's kind of the historical way is doing this manual process. But where AI comes in is AI could say, Hey, you know, I looked through your trial balance and I noticed these accounts And, and in general, these accounts lead to -to book-to-tax differences for most companies, right? Because AI kind of sift through its repository of data and say, you know, these look familiar. These have led to adjustments for companies in the past. Most companies are are quite similar in terms of what leads to these book-to-tax adjustments since the rules, you know, for tax and accounting are, are uniform. So AI could really help in identifying what accounts may be leading to these differences. And then the other thing AI is helpful here is often in your accounting data, it's very similar year over year. So you'll have many of the same kind of accounts. And, you know, if a company has similar activity over year, their trial balance is going to look pretty similar year over year. But what occasionally happens is a new account is added, a company engages in some sort of new activity that they weren't engaging in last year, and that needs to be recorded for accounting purposes. And that's easy to miss. If you're doing this manually, you might say, I didn't notice this new account based on this new business activity that happened. But AI, of course, wouldn't miss these things. AI would scan it and say, hey, this is the new account that wasn't there last year. Maybe take a look at it and see if there are anything from a book to tax perspective that that jumps out. You know, if it is what we call, quote unquote, tax sensitive. So by tax sensitive, I mean, should there be an M1 adjustment, do the tax rules differ from the accounting rules. So that's kind of really where AI comes in and it's pretty helpful to kind of sift through all this, all this data that was previously done manually.
0: know what wait who am i kidding sign up for a free demo of cross-border solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp that's xbs.ai slash tp And just to provide a brief summary of today's episode, I know we covered a lot of territory. The main reason calculating provision is so difficult is because of the differences between accounting and tax rules. They're different because they're designed with the opposite intent. Accounting treatments and tax treatment of the same item aren't always the same, as in the oil spill example we covered. There are two types of M1 adjustments, permanent and temporary, and AI can save a major headache in making these adjustments and avoiding costly mistakes. On that note, we want to thank Howard. Howard, thank you so much for being with us today and for such an insightful discussion.
1: Thanks, Matt. I appreciate it.
0: And thank you to everyone at home for joining us. Don't forget to check out the entire suite of Cross-Border Solutions Tax Podcasts on Apple Podcasts and Spotify This podcast was hosted by Matthew DeMello, edited and produced by Matthew DeMello and Andrew O'Donnell. Stephen Markow is our associate producer and writes our scripts. We'll catch everyone next week.